Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast, coming at you from quarantine. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, testing out new technology here this, uh, this fine spring day, and it only took us 30 minutes to, to, to get through the technology hurdles, but... We are here. I've got with me Howard Vincent, president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, along with Dave Nomson, vice president of government affairs for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And our theme today is just what I said a moment ago, questions from quarantine. Last week, we put out a uh, a call across all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we know a lot of you folks are suffering through long days in front of a computer. Uh, And hopefully you're daydreaming about getting outdoors, particularly come autumn, thinking about where you're going to go bird hunting, you know, maybe what your, uh, what kind of habitat projects you got on the, docket for this spring, um, or even questions about the organization. So uh, we have assembled seven different categories for you today based on all those questions that came in through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, I've got two guys ready to answer those questions uh, before we dive in, um, because I know that there's some folks that this is probably the first podcast they've listened to of the on the wing podcast. I'm going to have Howard Vincent and Dave Thompson introduce themselves to our audience. Howard, thanks for joining. Uh, you are president and CEO, and you've been with the organization since 1985. I was actually a volunteer, probably in 85. I did a couple of years as a volunteer, head up. Uh, helped set up some initial accounting systems for the first 12 chapters that were on the ground at that moment. So, yeah, um, as an employee, though, 33 years um, uh, in 2000, I became uh, the CEO. And uh, it's it's uh, been a pleasure and a, a humbling experience uh, to work for an organization that's built on volunteers at the chapter level who drive this organization and create that first dollar uh, that allows us to go out there and find those partners to help deliver mission. And you're quarantining at home. You live yeah, just about, yes. what, 10 miles north of the office in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. And, yes. and I, I'm assuming outside of uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever responsibilities, your wife, Wendy, has you in the garden these days. You know, I'm staying out of the garden. I'm. That's not my thing. That's her thing. That's her joy. And I don't want to take any joy away from my wife. That's that's her thing. But yeah, we've, you know, the for us here in Minnesota, the ice came off about 30 days ago. Uh, and I was able to get my boat in this weekend on Bald Eagle Lake. Uh, Bob's on the other side of the lake, actually. Yep. Uh, a ways, but it was a beautiful day Saturday, and we got it out there, so we're all set for the season. So I'm waiting for 
Uh, did not fish, uh, but I am waiting for that next ice storm. <laughs> well, the crappies are biting in the bay by your. Uh, yeah, I uh, see that they're just crammed in there. You can almost yeah. walk from boat to boat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other last, I think it was last week, you talked about the two birds you've been watching every morning from your breakfast window. Actually, it's uh, evening. It's uh, dusk. evening. Uh, we have a, a pair of barred owls that are in and we've got a little teeny pond in the old days you'd call it a swamp but we call it a pond and they've been coming in every night uh between like five and seven and they're fishing for frogs so they <laughs> perch just above the pond and then they'll dive down swoop down grab a frog and then swoop up across and uh and they are they're one bite eaters <laughs> it's one gulp and they're gone but it's been fun and barred owls are very vocal in the neighborhood. Hmm. So that's wonderful. Um, so we've enjoyed that. But spring is in the air and we are thinking about nesting season for the for pheasants and quail. Um, I think, you know, I'll throw this over to Dave at some point here, but, you know, I know a lot of the questions, you know, how was our winter? How was our survival rate? Uh, what does spring look like? And right yeah. now I think, we, I think we had a pretty good winter and I think we have an excellent spring currently, but mother nature, can be a challenge and so that's what we're watching here well that is that is the first topic we're gonna gonna attack is is uh biology but before we get there we're gonna introduce dave nompson to our audience vice president of government affairs and you didn't follow too long after 1987 did you dave it was 92 five years five years later yeah. And and you were hired as a regional representative back then, right? I was. I started as the um, regional representative for the state of Minnesota. And uh, within a couple for five of weeks. days. A couple of weeks. <laughs> it was a couple full two weeks. Two weeks. Hard. There you go. Two weeks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Two weeks. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, I think I've now done like, well, I know it's north of 300 uh, trips in and out of Washington, D.C., uh, working for the Bird Club here on farm bills. But uh uh, my background go, does go to the wildlife biology side of things. I did my undergrad and grad work at South Dakota State as a fighting jackrabbit years and years ago. Uh, spent a uh, number of years on the faculty of the wildlife department there uh, and then came to Pheasants Forever in 1992, uh, you know, a couple, three years prior to that first uh, major reauthorization of the Conservation Reserve Program, which was, which was huge for us. Uh, you mentioned you have a biology degree. You've worked um, uh, all sorts of different wildlife specialists, from pheasants to ducks to what well, else? I, I did my master's work on bobcat in western South Dakota, uh, food habits and reproductive analysis of bobcats, and uh, spent a bunch of years doing function and value work on prairie wetlands. Uh, and... Uh, uh, believe it or not, that's actually served me over the years as uh, one of my other duties has been uh, to serve as a rep on what's called the North American Wetlands Conservation Council. And we've been fortunate that Pheasants Forever has been supportive and uh, a member of that council since yeah, since about 2000, Howard. I think that was about right when you first came on as CEO. That was one of our priorities uh, when I came on and you uh, brought me to Washington, D.C. for the first time. Oh, yeah. And that was one of our priorities was to <laughs> see if we could get a seat on that council. Hmm. 
So we've got Howard's background all the way from 1987. Uh, so he's going to be able to answer a ton about the organization, um, our history, as well as what um, the current pandemic is, you know, what what some of the um, strains it's having on wildlife conservation and pheasants forever and quail forever in particular, and how our listeners might be able to help us out. And then we also have Dave Nobson uh, taking the biology, habitat, and government affairs perspective. So he's got a wealth of information and knowledge in that background. And then, of course, we've got hunting and dogs to round out the, round out the conversation. And everybody's an expert when it comes to hunting and dogs, so I'll even chime in on those. As long as you listen to me, you guys are going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So our seven categories, uh, biology, number one, the organization, two, habitat, three, legislative issues, four, how can I help, number five, hunting, number six, and dogs, number seven. This is questions from quarantine. With Howard Vincent and Dave Nobson, I'm Bob St. Pierre, and question number one comes. Uh, it's going to be on the biology topic to start. Uh, it's an email that came in through Pheasants Forever member Eric Nevison. And bear with me because it's a little bit long, but you'll get the point. Uh, he's he's going to dial back to last year to get to his question. Uh, with a super wet spring in 2019, forcing mm. farmers to put in crops late and a super wet fall in 2019, forcing farmers to harvest super late, if at all, across the pheasant belt. Then we had heavy snows and he's writing from the Detroit Lakes, Minnesota area, which is Northwestern Minnesota. It makes me wonder how pheasants survive, writes Eric. I know that deep snow is tough on animals, yet with the amount of still standing crops, Is it reasonable to conclude that if a group of birds found some decent cover, that with all the standing corn around, they not only survived, but actually thrived with with that situation? What do you think, Dave? Uh, Undoubtedly, there were some crops that didn't get harvested last year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tens of thousands of acres around the Upper Plains, northern Midwest. But, you know, first of all, it's it's good you're starting with biology because that's where it all focuses. And that yep. is the most important thing from a wildlife biologist or anybody else's perspective here. But, uh, you know, it, it is amazing. And I don't know a pheasant hunter that doesn't think about what was the winter like? What's the spring like? What's the fall population going to be like for birds? And uh, uh, pheasants are incredibly hardy. Um, ringneck pheasants can go as long as 10 days to almost two weeks without food. Hmm. They'll survive. You compare that with quail, if, if quail can't eat for like three days, they're dead and mortality rates pop up. So the huge differences in biology and how you manage for those two different critters. But uh, yeah, you like to think that all those extra kind of bonus food plots that were out there uh, may have helped and they may have. But right now is the critical, critical time for pheasants. It's an onset of the nesting season, like Howard mentioned. Uh, a little bit of moisture is good. Green up that vegetation. Those hens are going to be looking for those cool season covers that green up fast early in the spring. They're drawn into those covers. And uh, with a little bit of luck, we'll get through all of that. And uh, uh, then we'll get a little bit of heat and enough moisture that uh, insect populations will pop. 
at, at good levels because there's there's the other key. You've got to have those insects available when those when those eggs start to hatch. You know, late May, early June, uh, across primary pheasant range. So uh, a lot going on out there. But uh, you know, I saw a hen, uh, or actually five hens and a rooster. He was out there crowing, and it was in a field here, and I'm near Alexandria, so I'm pretty close to Detroit Lakes. We hadn't even lost our snow cover yet, and that rooster's out there crowing, and he had five hens with him. So uh, the point is, they're ready to go, and uh, uh, I can hear roosters crowing every morning, every evening, right from my backyard here in the Alec Lakes country. So you've given us a good overview for the next three questions, but I'm going to ask them... (laughs) And maybe you can give some geographic differences. So the so the next question comes from uh, ZD Miller ninety three of the uh, Pheasants Forever's Instagram feed. Uh, what's your regional winter weather summary for pheasants? You, you know, you, you spoke to Minnesota hey. a little bit. It, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't horrible, but it was it was snowy to an extent. What what about some of the Great Plains, the Dakotas, Iowa? What uh, What's Listen, the rest I, of the winter? I tell you what, I've talked to a lot of state biologists and uh, and just looking around, we had a pretty good winter. Uh, we did not have excessive or severe mortality in anywhere that I'm aware of. Uh, so uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an optimist, and uh, you know I think a lot of the birds uh, got through the winter, uh, probably a little lower than usual uh, mortality rate on pheasants, especially. Next question. Again, you've touched on this, but I'd like you to give a, a little bit more detail. Uh, Tony DeRose via Pheasants Forever's Twitter feed wants to know the pheasant nesting report given our spring weather. So you've talked a little bit about current nesting conditions, but dovetail that with what? when do pheasants actually start sitting on eggs and how long do they sit on eggs? And you know what needs to happen while the hen is on the eggs to what happens right after? Yeah, well, well, listen, it's a uh, uh, the spring's off to a good start. Uh, those roosters are still out there crowing hard right now, uh, attracting hens. We'll probably have hens start to drop some eggs here and there. They'll do that, uh, dropping eggs here and there uh, early on before they really settle down and start a nest. Uh, you know, for most of the country, you know, in the next two weeks, they're going to start to get serious about, uh, about laying eggs and, uh, they're going to, they're going to have a nest. They're going to lay an egg a day, uh, for, you know, 10, 12 days. And, uh, then they're going to settle down and start to incubate, uh, incubation period 20, just over 23 days. Uh, so generally across the Northern half of the country, that first peak of the hatch, that first nest attempt is usually coming off about June 7th through the 10th or 12th, right in there. And how does that differ with quail? Well, I tell you what, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we could, if we could uh, put quails, you know, uh, nest, be successful, nest again, be successful, just boom, 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 boom. If we could teach pheasants to do that, it'd be amazing Mm -hmm. the number of pheasants we could grow. But uh, the big difference is, of course, once a pheasant has one successful nest, they're done, one and done. Uh, if it's destroyed, they'll re-nest. Those second attempts, third attempts, even fourth attempts through that season are really important. But the clutch size starts to get smaller and smaller as you get through the year. 
And then you end up in a fall where you've got a higher percentage of younger birds out there that can cause you some issues later on uh, versus quail that are just going to just going to keep nesting through that whole season. Uh, similar to the same morning doves. If you watch morning doves nest in northern plains, they're going to they're going to just go from one one clutch to the next over and over and over again. And the benefit when you start talking about quail, like you, you mentioned, they potentially can have three different nests. That's because the male quail serves a role in the incubation that a male pheasant does not. Correct. Correct. They do, they do pitch in and help. You know, those roosters, uh, those roosters are doing their thing in the spring up here in this country. And uh, then the hen's taken over and that's it. Well, and Bob, I would, you know, and I wanted the listeners to recognize that that definition of when, what, what nest success means. So for where that pheasant lays that nest, they share, share that idea of what's that defining line. So when eggs are destroyed, she will go nest. But once yes. those chicks are hatched yep. and those chicks are lost, that's the end of it. She's done. Yeah, that's a good point. The whole thing is about recruitment, and that's adding those young to that population uh, later in, later in the season. And the weather after the hatch is actually is it equally important or more important than uh, when the hen is sitting on the nest? Well, you know, when the hen's sitting on the nest, they they can even you know we can even get some snow, and and they're fine. And eggs before incubation. And take some really cold temperatures. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but uh, if you don't have insects when those eggs are starting to hatch, uh, we've got a real problem uh, because pheasants or quail, you know, 90 plus percent of their diet those first few weeks of age, insects, insects, insects. So you've got to have those high populations of small, soft-bodied insects out there for those chicks. And then also cold weather or rain after the chicks are hatched is much harder than when those hens are sitting on the eggs, right? Very true. Very true. And especially for quail, uh, a little more, little more sensitive to those weather extremes than the pheasant chicks are. So you've, you've answered um, a number of times uh, the, the next question, Kansas Prairie Drifter via Quail Forever Instagram asked, other than grains and seeds, what are some of the other popular things that bobwhite quail eat? So you've mentioned insects a number of times. What kind of insects are we talking about? It is uh, just any of the any of the small, soft-bodied insects that are that are common in the in, in the spring. Whether you get a hatch of young gnats or mosquitoes or uh, just any of those critters that are out there, small beetles that, that are hatching. It isn't necessarily just flying insects. Uh, they're they're gonna they're opportunistic and they're gonna eat what they find out there. Uh, quail are actually kind of interesting and in they eat a huge variety of different things beyond insects. Uh, they'll pick at rose hips if you're walking through a piece of native prairie. They're gonna pick at acorns uh, in areas where acorns are available. Uh, smaller legumes and things are important for quail. Um, and even though they're small as native grasses seed and head out. Uh, those tiny little seeds are high in an oil content, high calorie content, and quail are all over them hmm. uh, as well. It isn't just 
You know, they're going to find sorghum, which they love, of course. They're going to find corn and beans, just like pheasants will. A uh, huge variety of food items, especially on the quail side. Yeah, we, we've seen those images of um, um, different things, like uh, images of grouse with snakes in their gizzards, right? <laughs> pheasants, quail, do they eat snakes, reptiles, frogs? Are they opportunistic like that? You know, uh, some of them really are, but obviously it's a question of numbers. And, you know, one snake that one one pheasant happens to pick up sometime, that story is going to be told a bazillion yeah. times. Yeah. But uh, uh, Well, I've opened up yeah. crops with uh, baby mice. Hmm. Yeah. Crops, a number of times. Cool. Uh, really? Very surprising, yeah. Yeah, or, or I think I think a lot of pheasant hunters have opened up crops where they're just huge grasshoppers, and not just one, but you know, literally dozens and dozens of grasshoppers in their crops. Hmm. Yeah, grasshoppers are a key, especially as you get into later summer, right? Yeah. Um, all right, switching to category number two, the organization Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, this question comes from. Shug Knight one via Quail Forever's Instagram. Uh, what is the process of opening up a new chapter? And since, Dave, you were a regional rep, I'll, I'll let you answer that one because you've opened some chapters. I did. I did. Uh, let's say several, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Look at I. That was too easy. I tell you what, you know, and this is the cool part about working for Pheasants Forever. It, all these years is the passions of these volunteers that contact you and you start to work with them. I mean, they just want to do some great things for the habitat, the wildlife, for the kids. And, and you can't help but be energized by all those passions of those individuals. So, you know, they'll, they'll contact us and, and we'll get a regional rep out there to sit down and talk with them about a local fundraiser and, and, of course, one of the things that you talk about early on, or at least I, I always did, is I talk a little bit about how their membership is potentially going to help us in Washington, D.C., but at the core of Pheasants Forever, it's all local, local, local. The money stays there. The projects are local. Uh, the members can see and touch and feel the benefits. And, you know, Howard, you've, you've told this story for a bazillion years now and, uh, and know it better than anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the team, I mean, in the day I started chapters as a director of finance. So I mean, we covered the countryside. We didn't have a lot of bodies, but I think the magic is if you've got an interest locally uh, and you really want to have an impact in your geography, reach out to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, uh, go online, we'll line you up with the closest uh, field rep in your geography. Uh, they'll sit down. I mean, the, Dave touched on the model. Uh, control stays local. Uh, your fundraising banquet model continues to be incredibly successful. We're in a unique scenario right now, which uh, will challenge us, but historically, uh, those volunteers who put on the banquet retain 100% of the net funds. The dollars that flow into the national headquarters for our operations is basically that $35 membership fee. So all of the auctions, raffles uh, stay locally. And then we it's our job at the 
from a national level to try to match your local dollars. If you can hold up that one uh, nationally, we can match it four times with great programs, great partners, uh, whether that's at our state and federal level, uh, but yeah. all habitat is local and, and even helping fight the battle in Washington, DC. That's one of those unique situations where we actually have to go to our 700 chapters, both on the pheasant side and the quail side and ask them, to help support our legislative work. And some chapters write us a check to help with that, some don't. So, I mean, that's the magic of the organization and those volunteers really have control. And, you know, very simply, Suge Knight, number one, uh, if, you, if you're interested in a Pheasants Forever chapter, uh, send an email to contact at pheasantsforever.org. If you're interested in a Quail Forever chapter, it's contact at quailforever.org. We'll uh, take a look at where you're located based upon your zip code and uh, assign you to a regional rep in your area, and we can get the process started. Uh, all right, Howard, this one's for you from ZD Miller 93 via the Pheasants Forever Instagram page. What is the best part of an average day in the life of a Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever employee? Well, I think I, I think it is either working with our volunteers or working with our partners. Uh, and so for myself, after 33 years, what really makes my day, uh, the reason I've got the single best job on the planet is working with our team uh, when they hit it out of the park, right? Uh, they're working with volunteers. They take that dollar and make it $4. They, they bring another partner, whether that's our friends at the Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, Farm Service Agency, Fish and Wildlife, your local Department of Natural Resources, and we help them deliver their mission, and they help us deliver our mission. So when it syncs up like that, that's magic. So if you think nationally right now, both Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever chapters raise and spend about $25 million dollars Annually, the national office operations with our people in the field, we're able to turn that into an additional, you know, 50 to 75 million dollars. Um, and that's magic. And so this is synergy. And, you know, we count acres. That's our success. We don't really usually talk a lot about our dollars. We talk about the impact of those acres. And so right now we're trending at about 1.4 to 1.5 million acres annually of impact uh, on the ground. And that's just purely our Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. The work that Dave Nobson does in Washington, D.C. with the Farm Bill, our investment there of roughly about a million dollars annually. Uh, and we don't pay lobbyists. This is strictly our team's efforts. We bring volunteers and that impact that million dollars at this moment is converted into 24 million acres of conservation. So, you know, we try to do that on all levels and then also working with our education outreach, right? What's this next generation uh, going to look like out there in the landscape for conservation and wildlife? Excellent. Uh, all right, let's go to Dave. You can answer this one from Minnesota Tiger King. I like King. your confidence. Okay. <laughs> Minnesota Tiger King via Pheasants Forever's Twitter feed. You're a big fan of Tiger King, so I, I know you can answer this one. Uh, what's I, knew the you were gonna, I knew you were going to go there. What's the most... Look, 
What's we're, the most we're under, under quarantine, right? Listen, yeah. First of all, <laughs> let the record state that we don't have quarantinis in our hands. I certainly hope some of our listeners do when they yeah. finally listen to this. But <laughs> I'm sorry. Go with the question. Yeah. What's the most underappreciated aspect of pheasants forever and quail forever? You know, I I really I think each of our individual members. If, if we could get them to understand and appreciate how important their voice can be in policy matters, it, it's amazing what we've done as an organization collectively through all our members. But, you know, I wish I wish I could come up with the right way to really educate them about how influential their passions through their voice with their local stories can be and how beneficial it can be like in washington dc and just the power and the strength that we have through each of those individual voices they can make a big difference you know it's it's hard to get kind of through all the noise of washington dc but if you really really get down to it there's a lot of great people out there that are just looking for good solid information to do the right things. And our members can provide that. So when we issue an action alert, when our folks on social media or on our email list get an action alert in their inbox or they pops up on their feed, if they take time to write a personalized email to their senator or representative, how many of those messages make a measurable difference from your perspective? Oh, from my perspective, I, I've had key uh, senators in Washington, D.C. tell me as few as 10 contacts can make a difference, can put an issue on their radar screen, can get things done. So, uh, and, you know, we, we issue them, we, we try to be careful uh, and issue an action alert only when it really, really can make a difference. And so uh, I like to hope that when our members see those, it's like, okay, you know, now's the time to act. If I act now and somebody else does in our neighboring county, in our neighboring state, all of a sudden with that same voice, we're being very impactful in Washington, D.C. Yeah. That's a great so, point. Yeah, Bob, and I'm going to, and I agree 100% with Dave that it does get to the individual um, whether that's making the call into D.C., when you have an opportunity to talk with your legislator, absolutely. Oh, do it. But, but also, um, we need to replicate ourselves in the field and being a mentor. And yeah. you'd think this would be yeah. so incredibly easy that we have this hunting community out there right now, which looks like about 11 million hunters, conservationists, shooters out there. Um, we have to replicate ourselves because this is as good as the vote. Uh, we're looking for those future voters. We're, we're trending old. We're 60-year-old yeah. plus is the kind of that perfect wave, and we need to replicate ourselves out there. Uh, I'm asking everyone out there, all the listeners, to take the mentor challenge. Take someone else hunting, introduce them to the outdoors, introduce them to fishing, uh, camping, hiking, uh, get them outside, yeah. and, and and it shouldn't be just somebody sitting across the kitchen table from you. This and, should be somebody else in your community that wouldn't maybe otherwise have an opportunity. And and Howard, now's the perfect time for that message. 
You know, people are looking for some, you know, the solace and the satisfaction and the just, you know, the well-being that comes from outdoor experiences right now. They need this, that. This and is the so perfect social distancing. Guy, yeah, follow the guidelines and, and social distancing and be respectful of others, but get outdoors. Uh, and, you know, but one other element to your message there, Howard, is that if you look 20 years ago, when you and I first kind of started with the organization, you know, we probably had 2 million hunters, 2 million pheasant hunters nationwide. We're at half that today. Right. And you've talked about how they're getting older, they're getting gray, uh, uh, losing their hair on top. Uh, we, But we've also seen 20 years ago when our chapters got together, maybe maybe one in 10 or one in 20 chapters did youth and young mentor hunting events. Now look at those chapters and what they're doing out there today. Right. It's exciting to see the changes as they're bringing more young people and more families and 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 going after uh, hunters that quit and, and and bringing them back into the sport. So there's a lot of good things going on out there. Yeah, listeners can find more information on taking the Hunter Mentor Pledge sponsored by Alps Outdoors by just going on to the Pheasants Forever Quail Forever website, typing in Hunter Pledge in Alps Outdoors, and, and you'll come across that. All right. right. And, so, and so recognize nationally all of the groups. We're working together with all the Department of Natural Resources. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and it's on, you'll see it under the R3, so recruitment, retention, and reactivation. If you see that out there, that's an opportunity to engage there as well. All right, Howard, this uh, final question in the organization category comes from D. Buster via Pheasants Forever Twitter feed. Uh, during the pandemic, COVID-19, what is the biggest challenge Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has incurred? Well, I th it's, it's absolutely our willingness to come together and congregate. So this past spring, when this hit at the end of March, uh, we had to move 200 Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever events, and we've hopefully shifted them out to fall. But even this coming fall, will people want to get together in that banquet format? Uh, will states allow it? Will uh, what's And we need to do the single best thing for our members, our volunteers, and the public. We need to abide by what the best science is telling us in this uh, in this moment. Uh, and we're it's the uncertainty, I think, of what's going to come over the next not just six months, but you know, next probably two years. Here, um, we have 700 events that take place annually. What is going to be? What's that going to look like next year? Uh, and so for us, that uh, probably, what, about 50,000, 60,000 members come from our chapters. And that means 60,000 times $35, mm. uh, the impact financially, uh, as well as the chapters uh, on the local dollars that they raise locally. That, again, allows us to go match those dollars. So um, we have, you know, at this moment, we feel like we're, on, we're in good footing uh, currently, but what's going to come down the road and how soon people want to get back to that normal uh, will determine some of the challenges we have. Yeah. And those, those, um, that 50, 60,000 folks are also 
voices in Washington, D.C., Dave, that uh, having those having those members are important when you go to Washington, D.C. and talk about conservation programs as well. Oh, absolutely. That, that's a huge part of being successful in D.C. is those members and their voices. So I, I guess the, the take-home message for all of our listeners, if, if you're a current member, thank you. Please, thank uh, you. Please, please make sure you renew. And if you're a listener that has not yet uh, jumped into the deep end of the pool, uh, we invite you in. The water is fine. We need your membership, uh, whether that's Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, or both. Got uh, a bunch of uh, terrific online incentives for you to join right now and get involved. Um, and then as soon as it's um, acceptable and safe from a health perspective, uh, we invite you to join our chapters at, at banquets again. If you've never been to a Quail Forever or a Pheasants Forever banquet, they're a hell of a good time. Yeah. Right. And, and so every individual has the opportunity to participate in the mission. Uh, and if you can't go to a banquet, well, then I, I hope you would go online, make a donation. Uh, Mother Nature hasn't stopped here. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the pheasants and the quail, long. yep, they're out there nesting right now. Our mission hasn't stopped. Uh, we have over 250 farm bill biologists that are working with producers on private land programs. Uh, we're working with our public land partners out there. Um, there's an incredible amount of work that will continue, uh, but that funding model is going to be stressed. We do need your help. Uh, you've It's like you're reading off an outline because that's the next topic I'm going to, which is our mission. Uh, we're going to talk about dogs. We're going to get to dogs. We're going to okay. get to dogs. Springers, I don't know if Springers are on the – the list of questions, Dave, but we'll get there. <laughs> but but your second favorite topic, uh, honestly, I think it's your first favorite topic. It's habitat. So first question on habitat comes from David. I'm sorry, David. I'm going to butcher your last name. Helison from Pheasants Forever's fake Facebook page. Question is, will Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever help a private landowner with a controlled Burn. There's a softball for you if I've ever heard oh, one. Man. I, you know, I tell you what, prescribed fire is is like the best of the best of the best in terms of what you can do to improve the quality of habitats, especially for, for pheasants and quail. And uh, we've got people on our team that are just, they're good at it, you know, and and I tell you, uh, we were active in different prescribed burn associations around the country. And so uh, in areas where it's allowed, of course, you got to do it when it's safe and when it's allowable. But, uh, uh, you know, if you get a hold of us and depending on where you are, uh, absolutely. Uh, private burns are a huge part of our organization. It's just, it's what, you know, it's, it's always at the first thing on my list, especially in terms of quail management. The first thing you should be talking about is doing prescribed burns. That's how you can really influence birds at a population landscape level. So and let's be clear about the terminology here. These are prescribed controlled burns. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, that some of yeah. the greatest challenges we've had. So Dave's right. That is one of the single best tools on the planet to be able to manage wildlife and do great things. And the mistakes that have been made 
with uncontrolled burns has uh, limited us and probably cut that tool in half geographically across the country because of the fear when it's been yeah. done poorly or it, you know, mother nature steps in and, you know, we watch the fires that have happened, but fire is really a good thing if it's done right. If you can do uh, it safely. Yes. Yes. So a good place for folks to start is on the website, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Go to the conservation tab, tab uh, scroll down to find a biologist and find uh, the closest biologist near you and connect with that biologist. And you might be able to even uh, learn about cost share opportunities to help you get your your prescribed burn done on your private land. Thank you, David, for that question. Uh, moving to hunt to live via Pheasants Forever's Instagram question. Um, Howard, has the quarantine impacted Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's work on habitat conservation this spring? You know, it really hasn't. Uh, the team is uh, normally works at distance anyway. So if you think about our organization, we have about 50, 60 individuals at our national headquarters in St. Paul, Minnesota. The other 400 are spread across the country, uh, typically work either out of their homes or at, uh, in Natural Resource Conservation Service offices. Um, so they're working at distance. They're right now working with private landowners uh, delivering farm bill practices, whether that's you know, all those great acronyms, CRP, EQIP, CSP, um, kind of the list goes on and on, uh, but they're out there delivering that right now. In fact, uh, there's an incredible amount of demand to add more positions right now, and we are continuing to do that. So we are expanding our mission. What will constrain us is our unrestricted dollars to be able to manage those positions, to be able to administer those grants, so if you think about, uh, I think right now we have over 800 granting authorities to allow us to do those positions. There's a lot of administrative overhead to do that. And where historically that membership fee, you know, gets us a long way down that. And if we're going to lose memberships because of banquets, we're going to need individuals to step up and help us uh, fund that back office support in order to deliver $60 million in habitat work is where kind of we are on an average basis. Same thing is true about some of the land acquisitions. Uh, we're moving forward. We're on a record pace this year uh, to close out our permanent uh, land acquisitions across the country. Um, we need, we're going to need help there on back office uh, because we've got a lot of money in the pipeline to deploy almost $40 million, uh, but we need bodies to go out there and do that. So we're to, that, that was a long way around. We, I don't think we've missed a step in our habitat delivery, honestly. Uh, but looking down the road here, our capacity to continue to deliver more, that'll be challenged. So you've talked largely about the national organization's ability to do habitat projects. What has been limited is on the chapter side. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about just the social dis distancing is creating. Yeah challenges to meet with landowners. Uh, but that's where, you know, the, if so, if we think we're delivering 1.4 million acres annually, about two to 300,000 of those acres are from our volunteers at the chapter level. The 1.1, 1.2 million acres comes from our farm bill biologist team, our habitat specialists, 
Um, so they're working. I mean, they're working remotely through social media channels to uh, for their private landowners. Uh, and so they can work at distance and uh, accomplish an incredible amount. So, so this may be a transition where instead of asking chapters to work with local landowners, we transition and use their dollars to put more boots on the ground. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from one of our chapters, the Music City chapter of Quail Forever via Instagram, uh, Quail Forever's Instagram feed. Dave, this one's for you. In the southeastern United States, what's the best way to increase habitat where there isn't as much CRP and there isn't as much public land? Well, well but we already talked about burning. So let's 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 move on to other things that can also uh, influence quail populations at a landscape level. And the first thing I talk about is thinning. Uh, if you're thinning out forest stands and uh, in you know re restoring habitats to kind of like that savanna, a grassland, and tree habitat, you're doing great things for quail. Uh, the other thing you can do, especially in the southeast, is if you can do support any projects that would restore native grasses as opposed to monocultures of, of exotic grasses, things like fescue, replacing fescue, which it's, it's kind of like Kentucky bluegrass for pheasant. It gets too thick, it gets too sod bound. It's, it's not a diverse habitat. It just doesn't have the food resources. So uh, anything you can do for native grass restoration, thinning, and then, of course, burning all all add up to more quail on the landscape. Dave, would you agree that, you know, if you want to focus uh, in one area, nesting cover? Oh, um, absolutely. And, and if you think so, for, yeah. for me, so I come from an accounting yeah. background, business background. But what was what's really visual to me for successful hatches is if you think about that, something the size of a marshmallow right? One inch to an inch and a half. And that little, those little legs have yeah. to be able to walk through that undercover to feed. And that's, and that's exactly why we're talking about opening up those habitats. If you've got a more diverse mix of grasses and forbs on that landscape, those little chicks are running around in there. That's the habitat that's going to attract the insects that they need as well. And, and you're right, Howard, they can also move. It, it, I, you know, it's it's amazing how often you sound like a biologist. You know, well, it really is. Yeah, thirty three years you're starting you to rub off, off all on those me. acronyms. You talked about <laughs> acquisitions, and here you are talking about the habitat needs for those critters out there. Well done. <laughs> uh, speaking of acquisitions, that's where my mind goes to for this this next question. Dennis Ellen Boss from Pheasants Forever's Facebook page writes. What has Pheasants Forever done in Montana? I never see the orange PF signs in big sky like I do in Iowa, in Minnesota, in uh, South Dakota. What's, uh, what's our habitat accomplishments in Montana? Boy, we've done some great things in Montana. We've got some outstanding chapters. You know, I guess, yeah. you know, some of the things I look at, some, we've had some really impressive land acquisitions, some permanent. Yeah, I knew you'd start with Coffee Creek. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. we brought some incredible partners. And obviously, I think the the demographics of Montana, I mean, that's big sky country. And then the average even ranch size is, you know, measured in thousands and thousands of acres and 
sections where in Iowa and Minnesota and the Midwest here, farms are, you know, 100 to what, 200 acres mm -hmm. normal. So there's yeah. a lots of those running down the road, but you get out to Montana and you got to drive a little bit, but Montana has some great bird populations and the variety of upland birds in Montana is pretty magic. And I know we've had some big success out there, but obviously there's an incredible uh, amount of work yet to do. And, and Dave, I guess, you know, CRP, uh, Montana's a big CRP state. Oh, huge CRP state, you know, several million acres out there in, in CRP. So federal farm programs make a, are a big deal in Montana. And, and, and just because you don't see the orange signs everywhere doesn't mean we don't have projects there. Right. Because like many of the things we do, the local chapters decide and the landowners decide, do they or do they not want to put signage on their properties? You know, some do and some don't, but it's completely voluntary. So uh, chances are you're driving by some Pheasants Forever projects, even though you're not seeing the signage. So I'll, I'll point to the public land acquisitions that you've talked about. Uh, Coffee Creek, if you go back to National Geographic, a 2007 issue, Coffee Creek's a wildlife area that Pheasants Forever helped um, may, put on the map for public use. Uh, and it was featured on the cover of that National Geographic issue. I think it was September of 2007, followed by Wolf Creek, which is a yeah, wildlife yeah. area open to public access. And uh, the most recent one, uh, we did a video with Onyx Maps just last fall, uh, Teton River. Teton River. Uh, yep. And if you go yeah. to our YouTube page or the Pheasants Forever Maine website, type Teton River Wildlife Area. And you will see a video of that magnificent property where there's pheasants, sharp tails, huns, uh, prong, keep, keep, keep going. prong keep going. horns, no. mule keep deer, going. Bigger, moose, bigger. Uh, elk. <laughs> uh, it, it is it is one of the signature properties the entire the organization's ever put in public lands, including the cold stream. Yeah, I had a chance streams to, out there to hunt that property. Uh, uh, right as we were starting to acquire it. And we're charging through that area, chasing roosters. And about halfway through, somebody uh, mentions to me, there have been grizzly bear sightings on the property. Right. Yeah. You know, and we're trying to decide who's going to jump into the next willow thicket <laughs> to kick a couple of roosters out of there. You're carrying your little pop gun 20 gauge maybe. and, and uh, But it is just incredible scenery and it's out there for everyone to enjoy right now that's right. pretty awesome and i think the magic of those acquisitions specifically weren't standalone uh, they were uh, allowing us to create connectivity between other public uh, lands out there that allowed continuity of you know whether it's uh you know you have two you know, huge parcels at distance. This allowed this that this was that third acquisition in the middle that connected all of those pieces together, and so those are you know sometimes threefold uh, impacts yeah. uh, on that landscape. So if you're a member and you've ever dreamed of going on a bucket list bird hunt, Montana is a place to put on mm. your on your list very high on your list make sure you bring a camera coffee creek wolf creek teton river all projects that uh pheasants forever members have helped make happen um coming back east a uh, similar question from b moran 
on Pheasants Forever's Instagram page. Uh, beyond the Pheasant Restoration Initiative in Michigan, what other types of projects or habitat work does Pheasants Forever do in Michigan? Dave, I immediately think of CREP. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. You know, CREPs or Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program or projects are a big part of Pheasants Forever. And the cool part of it is they're each developed state by state with different objectives in mind. And in many states, they tend to be really, really great projects for wildlife benefits. And the Michigan CREP is a good example of that. And the Michigan design on the CRP practice for CP38s or, or safe CRP, perfect for pheasants. That's, that's the target species. And so uh, it's a great example of projects that are available and they're designed specifically with those local landowners in mind to benefit pheasants. And Michigan's a good example. Ohio's got a nice CREP. Minnesota's had a couple of them. Uh, Pennsylvania is a good oh, one. I think Absolutely. they have three, right? Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's been a way to really, really help target CRP for additional benefits. And a lot of our members, you know, when, they love talking about the habitat, but they also want to talk about where do I go to chase some roosters and some quail? Well, in South Dakota, we actually have a CREP that automatically includes public access as part of the contracts. So if you're hunting in that James River watershed up and down East Central South Dakota, chances are you're gonna hunt on some crep lands that are incredible pheasant habitat and they're automatically open to public hunting. So Dave, why don't you also add in the uh, VPA HIP initiative, voluntary public access yeah, so it, that it's, it's part of the Farm bill. There, he, there he goes again with another big acronym. This is outstanding. Uh, but, you know, what Howard's talking about is one of our top priorities for farm bills in Washington, D.C. And I always liked the original name of the program. It was originally called Open Fields years and years ago. And, and it was a program that, that Pheasants Forever and others helped design and put in place. And now... VPA HIP is the current name of it, and it's administered, and state after state applies for funds to help augment, develop, and expand their state's walk-in access programs for hunting. So, you know, it, it's it's open fields program, it's it's walk-in access, it's uh, WEHAW is the acronym in Kansas, or it's CRP MAP in Nebraska. Open fields and, and waters. It's got a new open, name there. Open too. fields and waters. Yeah. Plots. Uh, so block management. OLAP. Yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> There's a lot of them. They're good though. <laughs> they are. And they're all supported, as Howard mentioned, by VPA HIP funding out of Washington, DC. All right. I'll go to um Let's see here. David Heelson from Pheasants Forever's Facebook page uh, wants to know if Pheasants Forever is doing any research with farmers specifically around cover crops. Dave, um, I oh, guess. Great, and, good question. And, yeah, go ahead and answer that one. Good question. Uh, well, first of all, you know, it, it, Pheasants Forever isn't a research organization. That's not our focus point. That's not what we do. But that said, we're absolutely watching what's going on with cover crop 
research around the country, a lot of it being done by various land grant universities and others. But uh, cover crops can really, really be beneficial to wildlife out there. And as those techniques are evaluated and tested around the country, you know, uh, what we're going to do at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we're going to follow the science and we're going to follow what researchers tell us. And we're going to help influence how they design those various cover crops. And so we're always, always testing, always looking for the single next best thing out there that can improve wildlife habitat. Uh, back to the Farm Bill, we've got a brand new program in the Farm Bill with another acronym that hasn't been mentioned yet, the SHIP program, the Soil Habitat Income Protection Program, or SHIP, uh, that was authored by uh, Senator John Thune out of South Dakota and with some help from Senator Amy Klobuchar here in Minnesota and others. And uh, testing uh, projects that put cover out there on that landscape and help restore croplands in a short-term basis. Uh, that could also potentially be very beneficial to wildlife, just like some of the cover crop work that's going on. Uh Next question comes from ZD Miller ninety three via Instagram. What is the best do it yourself management practice to improve fence row habitat for upland birds? Oh wow! <laughs> you know the 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 challenge there is just let's hang on to the fence rows. Yeah. You know, uh, is is the first challenge, and so so maybe the answer, maybe what I'd want to talk about here is is the importance of edge habitats, smaller linear habitats like fence rows that can be so integral to pheasant and quail habitat plans in an area. So whether it's a fence row or roadside ditches, roadside management, I put in the same category, buffers along ditches and streams, all of those linear type habitats, if you put the right covers on them, perhaps make them a little bit wider if possible. So they're going to benefit more species of wildlife and be more beneficial. Uh, that's the recipe. When you put habitats like that out there in conjunction with perhaps a land acquisition or a larger wetland upland restoration project, but connect all these corridors through fence rows and ditches and things. That's the recipe for growing some birds. All right, I've got three more habitat questions. Uh, we're going to uh, race through these a little bit here. Um, here's a real direct one. Walking with Prairie via Quail Forever Instagram. Do surrogators work or are they a waste of money? Dave, Mr. Biologist? Waste of money. Next question, please. All right. Waste of money. <laughs> In fact, it's, 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 uh, it's not just a waste of money. <laughs> Some of the re reports we've seen, it does create a predator sink. Um, so this is doing more damage. It's focusing uh, more pressure from predators in an area. Uh, you know, so it's almost a, it can be a negative. Here he is, right again as a biologist, Bob. I mean, you know, the I'm research does off. the research does show that you know if if predators are taking a higher percentage of those of those pen raised birds out there in any situation unfortunately all of a sudden they kind of key in on on a higher percentage of the wild birds that are in the same area so it is it is detrimental spend your money on habitat more there you go story, habitat, right? habitat habitat habitat, habitat. Uh, here's a curveball 
via Davis Johnson 33 on Instagram. What is the best way to get Hungarian partridge numbers up on my property? Oh man. That's uh everybody loves Huns, right? Oh, I they love do. Huns. I love they Huns. do, but you know what? The answer to that question, and I'm a wildlife biologist, I don't know. You know, Hun populations are so volatile, up, down, up, down, here, there, bouncing all over the place. You know, in the early 90s, Hungarian partridge were everywhere in eastern South Dakota. It was incredible to chase them. They were everywhere in northwestern North Dakota. You could walk a quarter section of ground. You'd put up eight to ten cubbies of Huns, Mm. you know, uh, and they've just they've disappeared. Uh, they tend to be a bird that does a little better in a more in agricultural intense environment. Uh, so a lot of people were thinking, you know, uh, more single world shelter belts and linear covers in conjunction with crop fields. They seem to be able to thrive there. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, I think just generally, if you're doing good things for, for habitat, for multiple species out there, hopefully you're going to have some benefit to Huns. But as to what to do directly for them, I don't think anybody really knows the answer. Most people correlate Huns and small grains like wheat. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be part of the rotation. You're not going to find a higher population of them if you're just talking straight row crop environments like corn and beans. Uh, the next category is how can I help? And our first question comes from Robin in Knife River via Twitter. Uh, Robin asks, I hear Giving Tuesday is coming up. What does Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have planned? And I'll answer that one. Uh, It's building off of the Giving Tuesday platform. So if we think to Thanksgiving, uh, Black Friday occurs right after Thanksgiving, and that sort of kicks off the Christmas buying um, season, followed by Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday is the way that uh, charities sort of encourage people to make tax deductible giving at the end of the um, at the end of the year. Well, as a result of COVID, the forces behind Giving Tuesday have um, set the date of May fifth on the calendar for all charities across the planet to raise funds and talk about their ha- their missions, their independent missions. And, and we are going to coin Giving Tuesday, May 5th, as Give to the Uplands Day. Right. There's lots of great causes out there, whether it's uh, the American Cancer Society or American Diabetes or you name it. But we are the organization that represents the Uplands. The, the places that all of our listeners cherish in their best moments of their life with their children, their parents, their blessed, their, their, their um, beloved bird dogs. And uh, so on May the 5th, we invite folks to follow along. Uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever websites, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. For Give to the Uplands Day, we're going to celebrate all the habitat work that we've been doing, specifically the habitat work that we've been accomplishing in the midst of a pandemic because nature doesn't stop, so neither can our habitat mission. 
So that's uh, that's give to the Uplands Day, folks. Mark your calendars Tuesday, Cinco de Mayo, May fifth. <laughs> uh, mix a margarita and get that credit card out. <laughs> All right, next question up. Um, Bird crazy via Instagram. For someone who loves bird hunting and bird dogs, what can I do to help pheasants forever and quail forever accomplish their habitat mission beyond just being a member? Um, I would say become part of a chapter, be a volunteer, uh, be a mentor. Um, Tell the story, uh, share with your community your passion for the outdoors. Um, You know, there's so many ways to do that. Um, Being that mentor, uh, for others is a gift that'll come back to you tenfold. Yeah. Yeah. And as Dave mentioned earlier, use your voice, not only as a member, right. but uh, when you see an action alert, write your senator, yeah. your representative, whether that's at the federal level or the state level or even the local level, you know, just thinking about, you know, you were talking earlier about the importance of um, linear habitat Think about roadside ditches and just, you know, writing your uh, county commissioners to delay roadside mowing. That can have a a positive impact for the birds. Yeah. And I would say, you know, recognize in your community that what hunters and the conservationists in our community do every day uh, is relevant beyond pheasants and quail and hunting. This is... The impact as a habitat organization we have on water, on monarchs, on butterflies, on protecting our soils. Uh, These are really important things that we do every single day that I think the general public doesn't understand the impacts that we're having. And, you know, I'll go right back to water. I mean, the single most important uh, thing in our lives, whether you live downtown Minneapolis or St. Louis, the things we're doing to keep water uh, from flooding, to keep water from moving our soils and chemicals downstream, um, through our buffers, through our initiatives, through our, uh, you know, all the new cropping systems that we're looking at right now, uh, creating opportunities for private landowners and farmers and ranchers, giving them better economic tools to address some of those challenges, um, telling those stories, connecting those dots uh, can be incredibly important. All right, move into our, uh, our, let's see, this would be our, yeah, our sixth category, hunting. And as probably no surprise, the most questions are in this category, including the very, the very first question, which is a six-parter. <laughs> so, oh, uh, so bear with me. Uh, email from Pastor Bill Knapp. From Fox Point Church in Fox Point, Wisconsin. Here's Pastor Bill's email. I am looking at a seven-day trip through South Dakota and Nebraska with my two-year-old German short-haired pointer, Ivan. I'll be oh, hunt- of course it would be a German short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a setup. It's a loaded a question. Uh, let me. This, t- is, this is like, this. I'm sorry. Is this your rooster road trip? <laughs> yeah. is this- let, it, he's a man of the cloth. He's asked for yeah. this question to be read. So just give me a. By the way, I think I spent a week in uh, 
Fox County uh, one night. I think. Uh, can, all right. Pastor Bill's question, finishing it out here. Um, I will be hunting four days with a guide in Aberdeen with four guys and then off by myself and my pup uh, to hunt alone for the rest of the week. I have a few questions about what would make this trip successful. Uh, number one, when you th- when you look at Onyx maps, what type of cover do you look at for the solo hunter for best results? Number two, how long do you hunt a dog to keep that dog fresh over the course of a week? Number three, do you take a day off in the middle to rest? Number to keep the dog fresh. Uh, number four, would you start Nebraska and then work your way north to South Dakota or vice versa to get back to Wisconsin? And number five, what advice would you give that I haven't thought of? Pastor Bill, how do you want to tackle this, fellas? You know, I think we have Bob answer. Yeah, I think we have Bob answer that. He's done. Yeah. How many rooster road trips have you done? Uh, I haven't done them all, but I've done enough to know that uh, uh, Pastor, I would start in the furthest distance away. So I would start in Nebraska, then work your way to South Dakota, then to Wisconsin. Start farthest and work your way back. Because if you keep driving, we made that mistake the first year where we started in North Dakota and then worked our way to Kansas and then finished in Kansas and had to drive all the way home with a 12 hour shot. That was, that was the wrong way to do it in my opinion. Okay. And then, and then Dave, do you have a German short hair? Well, I don't, but I would, I don't thinking about that German short hair. And and what I'd suggest is you start with the heaviest, gnarliest, (laughs) nastiest cover you can in the attempt to slow that short hair down. After a couple of days, so that it actually stays close to you. No, when they go on point, then you you know the keys and just walk up wherever they are. No, no, I I tell you what, I've got a a real suggestion for this guy because this could be a cool trip. And uh, I know he mentioned Aberdeen and and probably chasing plenty of pheasants there. But if you're in Nebraska and you don't take advantage of the sand hills and chase some sharp-tailed grouse. Talk about a perfect environment, in my opinion, for a short hair. Bob, you know more. And well, and, but, and prairie chickens. And chickens. And absolutely. And, and then as you move up to South Dakota, you could do the same thing with the Fort Pier National Grasslands. Again, you know, an spectacular area for especially prairie chickens there and maybe some sharp tails. Yep. So, uh, boy, those, those are a couple of things I'd toss into this trip. So I, well, and so, and I don't, so like Nebraska, um, their uh, quail numbers are at a yes. decade high and Good you point. might as well go shoot some quail in shoot that Southwest quail. in that uh, Southern tier, specifically Southwest. So um, yeah, that'd be a nice way to start. So a couple, yeah. a couple of the other, um, I would not take a day off in the middle. I would no. hunt every day, but I would, I'd focus on your prime times, you know, your morning um, based on shooting hours in the state that you're in. Take the midday off when it's potentially warmer and rest your pup. And then then you absolutely have to yeah. hunt yeah. every golden hour, right? The golden hour, the last yeah. hour, hour and a half of the uh, of the day is, is imperative that you hunt. So 
I think we're all in. We should all go. Yeah, pa- Pastor this Bill. Pastor, Pastor Bill, we're, we're in on this one. <laughs> all right. Uh, next question from Pugs90 via Instagram. Pugs lives in western South Dakota, but he would like to hunt quail in Nebraska. Where should he start for hunting quail in Nebraska? Well, that southwest corner. Boy, that, that's great. Um, you know, and I, incredible. I tell you what, quail are up so high in Nebraska, down into Kansas right now. Um, I mean, we're talking record population levels in right. some of those areas. And even in that north central region, as you cross from South Dakota into Nebraska, there's some pretty good quail numbers right there, too. Uh, some of those east central Nebraska counties have got good quail numbers, especially as you move down into the southern part of the state a little bit. So, uh, I mean, go get them. They're all over the place down there. And again, there's, you know, that private, you know, those VPA hip acres out there. And uh, so there's a lot of private lands that you would have access to. Um, so, and obviously uh, touch base with uh, Nebraska Game Fish and Park uh, for their, you know, go on site. Yeah. Uh, they'd make some great recommendations for you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the VPA hip program in Nebraska, to remind folks, is open fields and waters. You can look that up on the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission website, one of the finest public lands um, programs that's built on top of private land that also has a habitat habitat component to it. Uh, Pheasants, quail, chickens, sharpies, that's a great place to start. Uh, Next question, there's actually three three questions that came in that are very similar. Um, From Logistics22, Bat Brandon, um, both on Instagram, and then also a question that Pastor Bill asked about online digital scouting using OnX Maps. Um, when you guys are looking to hunt a new place using a digital map, is there anything that you you look for specifically? that uh, types of places that you like to go when you're looking at something that just looks like a square on your, on your phone. Well, Bob, I happen to use, uh, I I love some of those Onyx features. And when you can kind of scout by looking at the digital map of a property and, and let's say you, you know, you don't know what's over at the back end of the property. And maybe there's a wetland there that you can see that it's full of cattail cover and it's later season and you're looking for some of that roosting habitat where those birds are that last hour of sunset um, that can help get you over that next hill to go find find an area uh, you can use it to, if, if you don't have a dog it's a great tool because mm-hmm. you can find those linear smaller habitats in areas that a hunter without a dog can be more successful in so just a couple of ideas that come to mind yeah one nugget that i would so i i I wholeheartedly agree with, you know, using that app in combination with the road to try to figure out those places that from the road, they don't look like much. But if you use the app in tandem, you're like, ooh, if I get over that hill, that could be really good. The other piece is those properties that look like they're tough to get to. They're they're semi-landlocked. But there's one little, maybe it's a two-mile two-track to get there. Oh, boy. 
I'll walk that two miles every time, right? I'll walk two miles to get to a honey hole seven days a week. So if you can find some that that appear really hard to get to based on Onyx maps, make them really important for you to get to them. Um, all right. Back Nick via Instagram is looking for some hope, fellas. He wants to know, considering COVID-19, will there be a pheasant hunting season in 2020? What do you think, yes. Howard? Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we may have to do it uh, smart uh, where we are right now. So if you think about the spring turkey season, uh, the majority of the states left it open, fishing season's open, but you're going to have to be sensitive to when you put that boat in at the ramp giving people some space. Uh, you're going to have to think about uh, local hunting yeah. uh, versus traveling at distance. And uh, you should maybe call ahead to find out what the community, what's happening in the communities. So, you know, I, I'm thinking out loud here, the uh, steelhead fishing on Lake Superior, you know, north of Duluth is prime right now. And it, it is a big tourist. It's a big uh, revenue generator for that community for those communities to Harbor, Silver Bay, Grand, Grand Marais. And at this moment, they don't want people traveling out of out from their area to come in. So even yeah. you would think it'd be logical. It is a great social distancing, but where you have those crossovers of hotels, food, gas stations, where you just have to, uh, right. you know, limited health to, services. Right. Limited health facilities, so, yeah. And so they're, you know, at some level, they're isolated right now. So to bring Minneapolis-St. Paul to them is a challenge, and we all need to be sensitive to that. So, But I think, uh, yes, pheasant season will be open. And, again, you're just going to need to be thoughtful about what's the best thing for you personally and what's the best thing for those uh, communities that you're coming to. Responsible recreation, isn't that right, Dave? That's right. That's what it's all about. Prairie therapy. The op the uplands are open. That's uh, so. So the more that you can be self-contained, if you've got a pop-up or a, if you can camp, bring your own food, uh, yeah. fill the tank of gas, you know, to get you there and back, maybe, and just try to minimize those touches. Yeah. Uh, with others. All right. Uh, this is from Pheasant King eight forty via Instagram. When you're hunting in a place that has pheasants, huns, sharpies, and chickens, how can you tell the difference from a hen pheasant from all those other birds on the flush? What do you think, Dave? How do you tell the difference in that split second? You're going to learn pretty quickly that huns will generally flush as an entire covey. And if you haven't experienced that, you absolutely have to because it's just thrilling. So when you find them, of course, uh, Sharpies, uh, you can actually if really focus on that tail and you can see the difference between that little shorter, but very pointed, more white on that tail than you're going to see on a, the longer hen pheasant tail. And of course, as chickens get up, you're going to see that squarish, slightly rounded, larger, shorter tail uh, on those birds. So you, you can... With some experience, pretty soon you're going to get pretty accomplished at it. Telling the difference. Well, and the same is true for pheasants. If that light isn't just right, yeah, and you've got them, you got yeah. some high flying birds. 
it's hard to tell a rooster from a hen until they're on top of you. So it is. the rule, if you, you know, when in doubt, don't pull the trigger. And That's right. on those other species, it's usually, it's never going to be the first one. It's going to be the next flush that gets you yeah. ready that you weren't aware that yeah. there were huns in the area that you weren't aware there were sharp tails there. Um, so it's always almost the second set of flushes that you get to prepare and really think about the difference. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, here's an interesting question from Upland Inc. via Instagram. Interesting in that, okay, is it, the question is, what are a couple major reasons why Southwest Minnesota doesn't produce bird numbers? And interesting, be, I say interesting because that, that sort of surprises me that it's – that question's coming from that direction because I think Southwest Minnesota has underappreciated volume of birds. Right, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. I think, I think uh, they should go back and try it again. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There, there's some nice pockets of birds down there. There's, there's, uh, as we've talked about a couple of times now, this this incredible mosaic of habitats that kind of come together in that country. Uh, Southwestern Minnesota is a great example of where you've got that interspersion of public lands, and then you've got a lot of private lands conservation projects that kind of serve as the connectors for them. And so uh, I'd, give it a, I'd give it a try again out there in Southwestern Minnesota. There's some pretty good hunting down there. I agree. Uh, all right, next question from ZDMiller93 via Instagram. What is your greatest upland hunting memory either one of you guys can answer that oh man uh, I, boy i you know for me it would be hunting with my boys yeah uh, the first trip that i was able to take them uh my youngest turned 12 so we got to go to south dakota and it, it was you know incredibly magic uh to see the boys see that volume of birds and we've grown up you know with them grouse hunting in northern minnesota and you know we've they had hunted uh you know and, and so minnesota a little bit but this was their first real real pheasant hunt and for them to see these dogs right mm -hmm. so we had never had a hunting dog right we've had we've had mutts but uh for them to see the different dogs uh and how they work both flushers and pointers uh, the retrieves, uh, the magic, uh, they had success because of the volume of birds. And so it, it wasn't the hunt because of the, the birds killed. It was the, the, how you, how special it was traveling with my boys there and back and, yeah. and, you know, the joy on their face. So Dave, it's pretty similar. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm the same thing, you know, those, those family hunts, those hunts with my son, those hunts with my father, those memories, those are so, so special. And, you know, way, way down below them on the list is, is probably a hundred two where I've watched Howard miss roosters <laughs> okay, that my, I, my dogs I, have put up under his nose. Yep. I'm checking that box. I knew Dave would get that in. <laughs> but that was a special moment. That was, this was his, his young pup first new point. Pup. And it was yeah. a, it was a, there's no excuse. It was nothing in the way. It was a beautiful point. You know, it was uh operator error, a hundred percent, you know, boom, boom. 
Uh, all right. So a little different. Well, I'm thinking about uh, both your boys just coming out of the college years. Uh, Levi Kuypers, 0206 via Instagram, wants to know. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong question. Brody Runez out of Instagram wants, to, wants your recommendations for a low-budget pheasant hunting road trip for college students. And this one kind of catch, catches me off guard a little bit because I don't think of pheasant hunting, at least the way I do it, as high budget. You know, and I don't think you guys do the quote unquote high budget stuff either. Um, no, I, you know, I think those public uh, access areas, those private access areas, again, back to those open fields yeah. um, and you can camp, right? You can, uh, there's so many different ways, you know, again, I grew up in Northern Minnesota and you have the Superior National Forest and grouse hunting and you can camp almost anywhere you want, really. Um, it's vast, it's big, and I think there's so many, uh, there's so much access across the Dakotas and Nebraska, Kansas. Uh, you can be self-contained and have a great time. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll remind folks to please check your regulations in the state that you're going to hunt and the properties on whether or not you can camp. I, I can tell you, like the Fort Pierre grasslands, for instance, you can camp out there, uh, but a lot of those open fields, um, private land open to, to hunters, you you likely cannot camp. So just right, yeah, yeah, open fields typically doesn't allow camping, but there are campsites along those tracks and um, right. state parks. Yep, camp at a state park and then use that as your base sure. camp. So just yep. check your um, check your opportunities where you're going to hunt, but. Um, Public lands, particularly for the upland bird hunter, they're owned by everybody. So you buy that license, you buy a box of Federal Prairie Storm shells, and you have a shotgun, whether it's a pump, semi-auto, or an over and under, it doesn't matter. You got a bird dog, that's awfully helpful. Get out there yes. and, and uh, right. you don't have to spend a fortune to go uh, pheasant or quail hunting. No. Uh, all right. Dogs, Budford B via Instagram, probably the most controversial question on this particular episode of On The Wing Podcast. Budford asks, asks flushers or pointers? We'll go to the president and CEO to make the determinant call. So that's one of the most, it's strange, but that's one of the most common questions I get when I'm at banquets or, um, you know, out in the field with volunteers or people interested in hunting. You know, what's your favorite hunting dog? Somebody else's. <laughs> and I've had, you're right. So uh, I don't actually get to hunt that much. I mean, I have to hunt vicariously through through my team and my volunteers and friends. But um, so if I get out four times in a year, that would be a lot. It's, it's usually a, a business application, right? We're taking someone out, we're taking legislators out, we're taking uh, future partners out uh, to talk agency. about our mission, state agencies. But um, so I've gotten to see uh, so many different dog breeds work and, uh, it is really magic. So 
I've seen as many great German short hairs, and maybe that's my favorite kind of at the top of the heap, but I've seen some bad ones, <laughs> right? So this is, I mean, this is nature. Are you that me personal? No, no, it was not. It was just the reverse. So, go, Howard, go. You know, you know, I think, you know, I, I could think of Libby Lou, Dave, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, one, one of, of the our finest short hairs oh ever, my gosh. ever, ever. And, and, Whoa. and, and uh, Bruce Hertzke yeah. is the owner of that. And, and Bruce has a long Ooh. line of really outstanding German short hairs. And at the same time, I've hunt with, hunted with some great flushers and some great labs, you know, whether they point or not, mm -hmm. right? And I've seen yeah. some of those labs point. Uh, but, you know, they're machines. They can go all day. They're spectacular uh, friends at home. And, you know, I think that's the magic of it too. Yeah. You know, for myself, knowing these people and uh, uh, that they're absolutely, their dog is a hunting machine, you know, 60 days out of the year at best. But that balance of that time, they're yeah. spectacular part of the family as well. And I think that's magic. Like, like you, Howard, I've hunted over all of them. And, you know, I grew up on Springers and, and other flushers and, and now I've got a, a lab that does some pointing and things, but you know, what else is coming on in the last 10 years or so, all of a sudden you see all these smaller breeds of right. dogs that are incredible pheasant hunters. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the little Spaniel, the little uh, cockers. Yep. And yep. Uh, my son has a Boykin. My son, Jason has a Boykin Spaniel now that is just turning into a pheasant killing machine. This thing is crazy. And then it and covers it hits the cover hard. Yeah. And for me too, that the difference uh, between the pheasant range and the quail range to have an opportunity to hunt in the quail range and seeing those pointers. Uh, and that is, is cool. Is, is such a beautiful sight to see yeah. them backing each that's other. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and then, and then you're right. Uh, keeping those pointers on, they hold the point and then they bring out the little cocker and to the do the flush. That's amazing. That's as cool a, uh, vision as I've seen. I got to do it. I, so I, I don't think you're going to get a, the right answer is the right answer for you. You personally, yeah. the listener, right? What, what do you enjoy? Um, I think geography, the type of landscape and the type of birds you enjoy hunting can dictate some of the strengths for some day. If you live in Minnesota, you bus cattails and you like to do a little bit of waterfall hunting. Well, you probably are going to set yourself up with a golden retriever, or a Labrador retriever, and that's going to be your sweet spot. But if you hunt Kansas and you're going to hunt that rolling prairie, looking for chickens, kind of a needle in a haystack, then you might want to think about a little bit bigger running pointing dog. Or if you're going to hunt the North Woods for rough grouse in addition to other things, you know, pheasants and quail, then a pointing dog in the grouse woods is going to be advantageous. So you got to kind of ask yourself, what, I, what kind of birds do I like to hunt? Where do I like to hunt them? What kind of habitat? And that's going to help point you towards kind of a group of, of breed of bird dogs. So, mm -hmm. and then you got to like that dog too. You know, does yeah. uh, the pup have a personality that fits in with the home, with the kids do you um do you have time to run that dog off leash every day? Because if you don't, 
the German short hair is not for you. And it might be that, uh, you know, a little bit smaller dog is the right fit if you live in an apartment or have have a little tougher time frame. So there there really is no silver bullet, but there's a there's a way to get to the answer that's right for you. All right. Our final dog question um, comes from Cody Leland Bartlett via Quail Forever's Instagram page. Yeah, do you have a recommendation uh, for reference material for the first time tr- dog trainer with a new bird dog or family pup? Uh, you guys have all had had puppies. What um, what tool or uh, literature has been most helpful to you? Well, you know, years ago I started and did my own training, and for me back then, a long time ago, it was always. Uh, What's his name, Bob? It was uh, Gun Dog, Bird Dog, Water Dog, Richard, uh, Richard Walters. Uh, Walters. Yeah, that's that's you know go to starting point. I think that's some great, especially for for puppies and first year or two training. Yep. And uh, uh, I would still go back to those as a starting. Yeah, point. Yeah, I would agree. If you look for the, uh, I think it's got a red jacket cover. It's a uh, Gun Dog written by Richard Walters. It dates. Yeah. It's back to the '60s, but it is a really easy two evening read and lays down the basics. And then, then uh, from there, I would go look at um, some of Tom Dawkins materials. Oh, you know, once yeah. you have the foundation, then you move to, to some of the incredible uh, videos that Tom Dawkins has put out, including some of the stuff with our uh, organization, both podcasts and websites. You can learn a lot from, from Tom Dawkins, but. Yeah, pick up that uh, Richard Walters book. It's a great place to start. All right, as as we wrap up questions from quarantine, fellas, uh, we've got all of those 140,000 members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever out there. It's the heart of the spring nesting season. You know, pheasants and quail are thinking about uh, putting nests on the ground, so we... Uh, we got a lot to look forward to coming into the fall. What what are the what's the final thought you want to leave our mess members and listeners with as it pertains to pheasants forever, quail forever, and and our habitat mission as we close out the podcast? Well, listen, I, I I'll start and let Howard wrap here, and and uh, but I've just got to start with a tremendous thank you to each of our members and supporters out there for what they do and for what they bring to the organization. The, the passions that they share with the rest of us, it's, it, it's incredible. And it, it builds a synergy that just, it just swells. And, and it makes you feel so good about all, all those individual stories out there and what they do. So I've, I've got to say thank you to those volunteers, especially for all they do for the habitat, for all they do for the youth and the new generations of hunters. It's an incredible story. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're home with your families and you're you're in a situation where the four walls are creeping in on you, get outside. It is spring. Uh, you get to see rebirth happening and, you know, to our drumbeat that nature hasn't stopped. Our habitat mission hasn't stopped. Uh, and this may be a really a blessing for, for many of us to uh, enjoy more quality time with our family in the outdoors all together. And, and I, I don't even care if it's, you know, riding a bike or flying a kite. Uh, 
uh, or just taking a walk in a in a nature preserve and you know and watching the rebirth happening here this spring. Um, take advantage of that and then don't let it go. Uh, continue this trip into the outdoors. Um, look for these opportunities in your life and what matters. So, well said, guys. Um, I'll invite listeners. Uh, Please uh, pay attention to the websites and our social media channels. Um, particularly, we've got uh, Give to the Uplands Day coming up on Tuesday, May 5th. And uh, we're extremely proud of the fact that over the history of the organization since 1982, we've been able to turn your dollars, 90 cents on the dollar, into our habitat mission. 90 cents out of every dollar, whether it's a donation, a corporate sponsorship, a membership, an agency grant, 90 cents on the dollar of every collective dollar has gone in to create more habitat. So I invite you to join us at uh, pheasantsforeverandquailforever.org. Become a member. And uh, Howard, Dave, thanks for participating in our Questions from Quarantine podcast. Thanks, Bob. Nice job. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. This is great. All right, folks. Uh, Thank you for listening. We will be back very soon with our next episode. Until then, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.